0: I don't know about you, but I've had turkey leftovers for five days in a row now. Luckily, we've got the perfect podcast to listen to while you walk or jog off the last of the Thanksgiving Food Fest. I'm producer Andy Last, and today on Your Money, Your Wealth, Jefferson Lilly from Park Avenue Partners and the Mobile Home Park Investors podcast and LinkedIn group tells us why he thinks mobile home parks are the best real estate investment available. Plus, Joe and Big Al answer a whole slew of your money questions, like what percentage of natural resources should be in your portfolio? How and where should you invest $50,000 in cash? How should you plan for retirement in the event your pension disappears? What should your TSP allocation be if you're planning to retire in 20 years? And finally, can you transfer your 401k into your spouse's solo 401k? But first, here to kick things off with me are Big Al Clopine CPA, our guest Jefferson Lilly, and Joe Anderson, CFP. So
1: Jefferson, tell me your story, my friend. I would like to know how I can get in the mobile home park business and make millions. (laughs) <laughs> All <right>.
2: Well, <clears throat> Joe, as I say, when I woke up from the concussion, it just seemed like a good idea to buy a mobile home park. <laughs> <laughs> I got in, into the business about 11 years ago. Initially, I thought I wanted to diversify out of the stock market. I wanted to buy, probably initially, I was thinking about buying an apartment building. And ended up doing some online research and kept finding mobile home parks were this quirky little niche of multifamily that yielded a lot more money than regular apartment buildings. So I did some research and basically figured out why this is a a much more interesting niche than traditional multifamily investing, and uh, bought my first park and another park, and have now grown up and with some others. We've raised some money, and we
1: bought about two dozen parks nationwide. Tell me a little bit more about the process. You're doing research. You find out that mobile parks are more profitable or gives you a higher cap rate than, let's say, an yep. apartment building. And yep. I'm imagining that has to do with risk. Tell me the structure. I mean, if I were to do this, do I buy land and then you, the people put their own mobile homes on my land and I charge them rent? How does all this stuff work? Well,
2: good questions. Um, we don't actually develop mobile home parks. We would much rather buy the cash flows in place. So we're typically buying parks that have been built, say, you know, somewhere back after the war, uh, you know, 50s, 60s, sometimes into the 70s. And uh, again, we typically purchase them with, let's just say, 80, even 90 percent already full with folks that own their own homes. So that means the cash is flowing, as it were. If we were to develop a park, Uh, First, that's very, very difficult to do. That's one of the things that makes this such a quirky niche and so profitable is the government regulation. So it's generally not possible to build mobile home parks anymore. Pretty much every city and county has outlawed that over about the last 30 years. So you tend to buy parks in place. And again, maybe they're 10% vacant, maybe 20. And then at the margin, we can buy new or used homes, bring those in. Our goal is always to make a good return for our investors and also to expand the supply of affordable housing. So uh, we're a for-profit, but we've also very much got a a social mission with with what we do. So we're infilling that last little bit, but it's usually already been fully constructed. Those pads are just sitting there vacant. And again, we're buying new or used homes, bringing them in, putting them on those pads and uh, opening them up to new lower income families.
1: So I go to the mobile home park... Right? Yep. So do I own the mobile home but you own yes. the land that my mobile home yes. is sitting on is I guess my question.
2: Yes. So that puts me as a landlord in a pretty good position. I've got a responsible tenant. They do own almost all of them. Do own that mobile home. You know, if you're making 30, 35,000 a year income, this is your path forward to home ownership. At least for now and and you can always trade up later. But yeah, by and large, the folks own their homes, and therefore all those proverbial leaky toilets and leaky roofs are on – the maintenance of those is on them. They're the homeowner. I just collect the lot rent into the ground. So basically this business is a lot like the parking lot business, except uh, we have mobile homes instead of cars, and and they're much more permanent. Almost like self-storage too, I would imagine. Well, somewhat, except with, that's another very good business. If I couldn't be in the mobile home park business, I'd probably be in self-storage. But the issue with self-storage is there you, you do have some real estate to improve and maintain. There are bricks and mortar there. Uh, whereas, again, we generally just uh, are buying parks with roads and some pipes in the ground, the water, the sewer. But that's it. We, we have many parks where we literally don't own anything that sticks up out of the ground. Many of our parks, again, are, are, are more affordable, maybe an average lot rent of 300 bucks. But that means typically there isn't even a, a clubhouse or a pool or tennis courts. Uh, those tend to be much higher end mobile home parks that, that would have those sorts of improvements. So, yeah, often we just literally own some, some of the improvements that right are right on the surface of the land or below it. And, uh, and anything else that sticks up out of the land, we don't have to maintain those mobile homes are owned by the residents and again that makes them a much more responsible tenant than say a typical apartment building renter we've got uh, tenants that have really an owner's mentality which is way better than again investing in an apartment building where you have you know traditional and and proverbial renters that that damage places and turn over every couple of years our tenants because they own those homes and although they're called mobile They really aren't. Again, these are mobile homes, not RVs. There's no engine in them. They get tied down to the ground permanently. Our tenants tend to stick around for a decade or more. So we've got lower maintenance and lower turnover uh, than apartment buildings. And as I mentioned earlier, it's illegal to really build any new parks. Why is that? Well, you know, if you're a, a local city or county, you know, alderman or. Whatever those folks' titles are, if you've got the skills and interest to run in a local election and get elected, honestly, you're probably at least middle class or upper middle class. There are very few people that get elected to city councils that live in mobile home parks. So unfortunately, a lot of folks that live in single family houses look down on people that live in mobile homes. There've been a couple of studies done showing that, in fact, mobile home parks do not have higher crime rates than their surrounding neighborhoods. So, I think it's unfortunate, and it's largely an undeserved reputation. That, is it, that well, isn't is
1: there a lot of like retirement that. communities that? Yeah, like Apache yeah. Junction. I think my aunt lives there
2: <laughs> in Arizona. Yeah. Do you own that so, one, Sir, Jefferson? Jay, I I don't <laughs> not yet. Give, give, give me the name and number of the owner. I'll give him a call. <laughs> Um, But yeah, so there are retirement communities, obviously in the Sun Belt, a lot in in Arizona, more in Florida. That is probably, I would guess, 5% of all the the market, 10 at the most. So the overwhelming majority of mobile home parks are what we call all ages. So there may well be seniors uh, in them. The first park I ever bought was probably a third or more seniors uh, and still is. But officially designated seniors communities, again, are a fairly small percent of the total market out there of parks.
0: Okay, I got a question. I'm a complete novice. I know nothing about real estate investing, but I do know that occupancy is a big deal. So how does that work in terms of a mobile home park as opposed to traditional real estate investing?
2: Right. So we, of course, look, you know, we'll research the occupancy before we buy a park. We'll then market it. Two ways. We do market that we have usually empty pads and we'll even often pay to move a mobile home in. Uh, as I mentioned, it is expensive to move these, let's just say roughly three thousand sorry, six thousand for both the move and then getting the new skirting put on the house and the new pipes all connected. So we'll often pay at least half, sometimes all that to anybody that owns their own home and wants to bring it in. But honestly, not very many people move, even when, when you pay for the move. So we then again will buy and bring in either new or used mobile homes, and we'll often finance those. So we advertise those again on you know places like Craigslist and Zillow, and then we'll be able to provide somebody a house, generally say a three-bedroom house, roughly twelve hundred square feet, a three-bedroom, two bath house, probably for two thousand dollars down, maybe three. And maybe their total payments would be, say, 650 maybe 700 a month. And in most of our markets, folks would have otherwise been living in an apartment building with only, say, two-bedroom apartment for probably closer to 900 in most of our markets. So, again, we're able to get folks on a path to home ownership for less money than living in an apartment building.
1: So how do you make your money? Is it then renting out just the land, or are you now saying, hey, I'm buying some of these homes and then selling them to other individuals that you want to fill your occupancy up? Yeah, so we'll do
2: both. Where I am now at at Park Avenue Partners, we'll actually buy homes, finance them for tenants, we'll own them often outright, and put them on a rent-to-own agreement. But we do also work with uh, a couple of large lenders uh, that will actually own and finance the house. That means we don't ever really have to take title to that house. They'll move in a mobile home and we'll work with them to find someone qualified that will move into the house and then that person pays their mortgage to that bank and they pay us the lot rent. So yeah, we make money principally by collecting lot rent. I'm guessing that's probably about 90% of our revenue. You know, the remaining 10 would be from financing houses. And then, you know, we pay the local manager, we pay the property taxes, we maintain the roads and those pipes in the ground. and. When all is said and done, usually there's still a profit for us. That's how we make our money.
0: To read the transcript of this interview, visit the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast because in the coming weeks, we'll get tips and resources for our military families from LeK and Bethany Bayless of Heroes at Home and the Money Millhouse podcast and everything you ever wanted to know about your finances and everyone else's with Lindsay Stanberry, editor of Refinery29 Money Diaries. And remember, if you love your Money, Your Wealth, you can do us a huge favor by spreading the word. Share the podcast on social media, email your friends, tell them to subscribe on their desktop computer or their favorite mobile app, and tell them not to worry. It's free to listen and to subscribe. You can find everything you need at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Now let's get back into that conversation about mobile home park investing with Jefferson Lilly.
1: When you look at it, it sounds that lot rent isn't all that expensive. But it sounds like there has to be a lot of lots for this to make sense. And if you're saying that mobile home parks have provided a better, let's say, rate of return or better investment than a normal real estate deal, how is that? I mean, there has to be then, what, more risk involved in mobile parks or...
2: Well, I don't view it that way. Most people don't. I know all the business school professors at all the fancy Ivy League schools are always preaching that markets are perfectly efficient and you couldn't possibly ever have higher return for lower risk. But my investment thesis is that this niche is just that, at least for now. Maybe may be different. Maybe it all gets discovered in another five or 10 years and, and maybe the rates are reduced at that point. But right now, this is still a very small niche. So to put it in perspective, I would guess that the traditional multifamily market, that is uh, apartment buildings, is probably at least 100 times larger. So not everybody is talking about this niche. You know, they're talking about the latest apartment deal they just got in on. So this is largely undiscovered. It's just really small. And because it's so small, Wall Street can't really shove a billion dollars a year at it. Most of us that are are going after this niche, we're raising a couple million a year to go do this thing, Um, maybe 10 million. This isn't a large niche, so it's largely undiscovered, and it is still, in my view, still quite inefficient.
1: And so when you're buying these parks, uh, then are you getting them at a discount? Well, you know, who, who's to say exactly what a discount
2: is or, or what they quote unquote should go for. We're, we're often buying parks that say an eight cap or a nine cap. So that means that if we were to buy it without any debt, we'd make eight or nine percent on our money. We do tend to buy with debt and then leverage, you know, moves our returns usually up into the 13 to 15 percent range. Mm -hmm. But, you know, certainly apartment buildings often will go for like a five or six cap. And that's what your cost of capital is. So borrowing to pay that much for an apartment building means it's very difficult to get a good return. I think in today's market, a lot of apartment buildings, you know, might only return seven or eight percent cash on cash. And that's more like half of of what we'd get for some of our deals in in this niche.
1: A lot of our listeners are looking for passive income. So, you know, if you're looking at an 8% cap rate, that's pretty good cash on cash return. Yes. What would, let's say, Andy and I want to go out and buy a mobile park. What do they run? I mean, I'm sure there's a full gamut of them, but on average,
2: yeah. My best guess is that the average mobile home park in America probably goes for, let's say, three quarters of a million bucks. The range, I mean, theoretically, any single piece of land with two mobile homes on it would technically be a park. Something like that in, in a not good market might be a twenty dollars or $30,000 expense. And then some of the very nice parks right on the water have easily gone for 30 to $50 million.
0: What's an average uh, number of for- lots on a mobile home park? The average, I'm guessing,
2: is somewhere around 35 or 40 pads would probably be the average nationwide. We tend to buy parks that are roughly twice that size, closer to 90, even 100 pads, and we're typically buying parks for 2 to 3 million would be average. But you know, even for us, it's been quite a range. Our smallest deal was uh, $430,000, and our biggest deal so far was just over 10 million.
1: So uh, what I gather of what you're doing is let's get some investors involved, let's get a pool of capital, yep. go out, buy some of these mobile parks, use some leverage. Am I saying that right? Mobile home, mobile parks. home parks. Mobile home parks. Yeah, mobile home <laughs> yeah. parks, right? Yeah. How much leverage would you say on average that you're using within um, your fund?
2: Right around 72%. We always ask for 75 which is usually the max that a bank or the CMBS market will go, or the agencies. We also borrow from Fannie and Freddie to finance these. But we typically get scaled, well, maybe half the time we get scaled back more towards 70 So I, I believe 72% loan-to-value is where we go in. And then we'll raise rents. As I mentioned, we'll buy and bring in homes. So pretty quickly, we think we've improved the, the value and, and the debt service coverage ratio, sometimes even towards 2.0, which basically means for every dollar in rents we get, we, uh, sorry, in profit, in cash flow, we only have to pay out 50 cents to the bank. So that gives us quite a good cushion. If something bad happens, we can still afford to, to lose a bit and, and still certainly make our, uh, our bank
1: payments. So, What happened with some of these parks in the recession? Um, in 08, when real estate kind of collapsed and everything else, residential real estate blew up, You know, commercial yes. real estate kind of blew up. How did mobile parks do?
2: We did uh, surprisingly well. So I had just bought my first park in March of 2007. So that was probably to the month and maybe even to the week, <laughs> the very end of, of the easy money and, and the high prices. And by that summer and certainly Into early 08, the wheels began to come off the housing market. Now, I will mention that something like 80% of all the site-built house mortgage defaults were in, I believe, 20 zip codes. So this was a very focused bubble bursting, I guess, you know, in L.A., in Las Vegas, I think Phoenix and, you know, the Miami area. There were some very concentrated areas where everything blew up. But my first park was in Oklahoma, and there were very, very few defaults there. Housing prices actually continued to increase 07, 08, 09, into 10. Oklahoma didn't have a down year. The growth slowed, but the housing market just moved along just fine in places like Oklahoma and, in fact, in most of the country. So my rents were up approximately 50%. From 07 to 09, uh, that first park had really low rents of just about $110 a month. And I raised them, I believe, to $155 over those first couple of years. Still pretty low. Yeah. Um, But I I didn't lose tenants. I stayed 95 to 100% full right through the whole housing debacle. Even other park owners that I know closer in to places like Vegas and and Florida where there was a much greater uh, bloodbath they had somewhat higher tenant turnover, but even they stayed full. So this is really a fairly recession-resistant uh, niche.
1: If someone wanted to do this on their own, Jefferson, what advice would you give them, or what resources would you help them with to say? Uh, because you've been extremely successful doing this. You have your own company. You're, you know, yeah. you have investors, and, and you're building one way. Uh, Another way is be doing it on my own. What advice would you give our listeners in that circumstance?
2: Well, I'd encourage them to listen to my podcast. I actually started the industry's first podcast just dedicated to investing in this niche. It's simply called Mobile Home Park Investors. uh, And they can also just find it off the website, mobilehomeparkinvestors.com. That'll link them right through to iTunes or Stitcher. I've done 112 or 13 podcasts. Uh, I try and get one out about every other week, but I think folks can learn a lot. I've been getting something like 16,000 downloads a month uh, from, from people learning about the business and, and downloading my podcast. So I think that'd be a pretty good place uh, to start. And um, I do answer questions if uh, folks want to reach out to me as well. <laughs>
1: Uh, Jefferson, this was fantastic. Um, I've learned quite a bit about investing in
0: me too. Mo- mobile parks. So, Joe, uh, are we going to go in together and I buy one? I think so.
1: I think we. We're, I'm going to listen to <laughs> Jefferson's podcast. There you go. I'm going to take some notes. I might write them. Ask him a few questions, and then um, oh, yeah. yeah, then then we're going to go to Oklahoma and start sco- <laughs> scoping some stuff out. Or maybe Apache Junction, where my aunt used to live. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Yes. Uh, We're talking to Jefferson Lilly um, from Park Avenue Partners. Uh, Jefferson, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Joe and Andy. Be well.
0: Find links to Jefferson Lilly's Mobile Home Park Investors Podcast and LinkedIn group in the show notes at YourMoneyYourWealth.com. Remember, this show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the investments, securities, or services discussed are suitable for any investor. And investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. And no, that doesn't mean we're done with the podcast. It's time to open up the email inbox now and answer your money questions. You can add your question, comment, or suggestion to the list by emailing info at purefinancial.com, clicking the Ask Joe and Big Al button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. You can call 888-994-6257, or you can post your question on our Facebook or Twitter pages, and the fellows will answer you on the podcast. Find the social links in the show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. We got Nick from Morena Valley, California.
1: Is that right? Moreno Valley? Moreno. Uh-huh. Have you ever been to Moreno Valley?
3: I've driven through it. Okay. Yeah. I don't even know where it is. Well, me neither. It's, it's on the way to Palm Springs. Got it. Yeah.
1: Uh, so Nick writes in. He's like, what do you think of natural resources in exponential technology as part of a diversified portfolio and in what percent? Thanks, Nick. All right. Well, I could take a stab at that. In okay. exponential technology, you must listen to um, our good buddy Rick Edelman. I've,
3: that's what I'm thinking, too.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, and um, and
3: by the way, there there is actually a fund or two that invest in uh, specifically that.
1: Yes, and those are all publicly traded companies,
3: right? So, sure.
1: Well, I guess I'll I'll take a stab at both of these. I think yes, if you look at natural resources, do we believe that that should be a part of your portfolio? And the answer is yes. And natural resources could be all sorts of things, but what percentage would you want to have in Uh, your overall portfolio?
3: Well, that's always a good question, and and I guess I would answer it by saying not too much. You don't I want mean,
1: timber, yeah,
3: oil. I, I do, but a, a low natural amount. Natural gas. I mean, I I gold, I, silver, I, I usually platinum. think stuff like that. Maybe I don't know two to four percent. Th- yeah, I was going to say under five. So I guess I guess we're consistent.
1: Yeah, I I think it's a good diversifier. Uh, a lot of times, people will use some of these. Um, in a single holding, such as gold, is very right. popular. Sure, um, they try to use it as an inflation hedge. Right, um, it's a very vol- volatile inflation hedge. Yeah, um, it is. So, but yeah, we believe that you should absolutely have some sort of this um, asset class in your portfolio. But yeah, no more than five percent. Right, exponential technology. Uh, I don't know. Just, I think you,
3: if you have a globally, you you already own it. You already have it. So we're not big believers in trying to pick sectors. I I think if you have a globally diversified portfolio, low cost portfolio, you're going to have both of these in there already. Right, and so where the,
1: I guess, active management comes into play is that hey, we believe that certain sectors of the overall market will outperform, so let's overweight or underweight particular areas. Um, you know, w- we believe in that to some degree um when it comes to the what types of stocks potentially on, but not necessarily the sector. We 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 look more in price and size right. versus do they specialize in a certain sector of the market? Um natural resources is a very specific area of the market and for you to say, "Hey, maybe I overweight natural resources because I feel something's going to happen in the future of the economy, uh, we believe that's a guessing game. And it's very difficult to to try to play that game. Not not saying it's impossible. It's just difficult to time it correctly of when you overweight it and then when do you underweight it or when do you get the normal weight back in, in any other area of the market.
3: Yeah, and the problem with that, Joe, is that if, if you think it's a really good time because of X, Y, and Z, probably other people think that too. And so the price may have already been bid up. Right, and so that's that's why it's difficult because it's things are already priced into the market.
1: We got Morgan calling from Chicago. Um, Morgan writes in, uh, please suggest how to invest fifty thousand dollars cash as a retirement income. I've maximized all other retirement accounts, including four hundred three b and Roth IRA. Thanks.
3: Well, Morgan, congratulations for maxing out your four hundred three b and Roth IRA. So, if you're under fifty, so that's eighteen thousand five hundred and it is $5,500 5500 in the Roth IRA. So very good. So I guess I, I guess I'll I'll take a stab here. I, I are you I guess you're asking I don't know if you're I guess you're asking that you have an extra $50,000 over and above what you have happen to have inside your 403Bs and Roth IRAs. Well, they
1: got cash, for 50 grand right outside
3: mm-hmm. of the accounts. Yeah. How do I invest it? Yeah, so the first thing you got to do is is you want to make sure you have an emergency fund and it, we probably would say 6 months of living expenses. So, let's say your living expenses are $60,000 and you probably want to set thirty thousand aside just for Liquid emergencies, keep it in cash or put it in a money market account. So, if in that example you got $20,000 left over, and then it depends upon what are your kind of short term, midterm goals. If if this really is for retirement, like you say, then you can have it more geared towards growth, which would be more stocks over bonds. But maybe you've got a secondary goal like a a down payment for a home or or something like that, then it might be altogether different.
1: So, $50,000 cash is retirement income. She's he or she. Morgan has maximized all of their accounts. I would say this Morgan, you, you're already investing. You have a Roth IRA and you have a 403B. I'm making the assumption that those are invested in some sort of investment vehicle versus cash. Yeah. Sure. That it's in a mutual fund of some, of some sort. Just because it's outside of a retirement account, you would invest it very similar to your retirement accounts. But I think sometimes it's like, well, I have this money outside of my retirement account. What do I do with it? Well, you're already an investor if you have a 403b in a Roth. You would do very similar just because it's outside of a shelter retirement account it doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's a good diversifier that you'll have from a tax perspective when you start taking distributions from the account out in 5, 10, 50 whenever your retirement date is. So it's like, well, here, I have this $50,000 cash. How do I invest it? Well, how are you investing your other funds? So you probably want to follow a similar logic. Um, Then we could get technical and talk about asset location, where you would want to have more, um, I guess, asset classes that have a higher expected rate of return outside of your retirement account. You might want to use exchange-traded funds versus mutual funds, because those are more tax-efficient. But I wouldn't overthink this. Now you got some cash, you want to invest it, you've already invested in a Roth, so that means you have a brokerage account somewhere. So just kind of look at it like that. It's it's I don't think you you gotta overthink this thing.
3: Yeah, I I agree with that, Joe. And I think a lot of times people will come to us and say, I've got an extra hundred thousand, what should I do? And it's like Well, you got to look at the whole picture, right? right? And I think that's what you're getting at. So yeah, you look
1: at, all right, you already are an investor. You have investments already. Just because it's outside of a retirement account, I wouldn't overthink it. Um, All right, so we got Rob from Hollywood. So I'm listening to your show about planning for retirement without a pension. Uh, Here's my scenario question. I have a pension in the entertainment industry. All right, Rob. Well, I wonder if there's anything that um, we've seen. Entertainer?
3: Right? Maybe. I if he's famous. It could um, be. Rob from Hollywood.
1: I have worries that it may not be there when I go to retire or won't be as much as they say. Regardless of that, since I have a pension under federal law, I am not allowed to put money into a tax deferred IRA and make too much money to put into a Roth IRA. Okay, we'll come back to that. Um, I'm also leery of mutual funds as I know you can get taxed and lose money in a year where the mutual fund goes down, but trades have been uh, made inside the fund that were profitable. I uh, learned that on your show. Um, so there could be a t- tax issue within a mutual fund. So, what can I do to put more money away and have it grow? To be sure that I have enough to retire if my pension goes bust, or just to put extra away, or just have uh, more money in retirement? By the way, I am not afraid of mutual funds or ETFs or stocks, as I have some. I also have an IRA valued around $200,000, and I'm not sure if I can survive the tax hit if I convert a portion of it to a Roth." All right, Rob. There's a lot of meat on that bone here. Yeah, there
3: is. We could do a show on this one.
1: Yes. Um, well, first of all, he's, th- there's a couple of questions that I have of stating that all right, under federal law, he cannot put money into an IRA. I'm not sure what he means by that. I'm not well, allowed to put money into I, I th- a tax deferred IRA. I think
3: what he's saying that that he can, well, he he, abs- he can put money into an in IRA, but he can't get a tax deduction. So I think that's what he's trying to say. So you can
1: put money into an IRA, but he also has, he makes too much money to put money into a Roth. He already has the IRA. So he can make a non deductible IRA contribution as that's, long as he's under 70 and a half. That's correct. So we don't know how old Rob is. Um, And you're right. If you look at start building, and and this is very similar to um, Morgan, of, hey, well, I have some extra money. How do I invest it? Well, yeah, you would want to continue to build a a non-qualified brokerage account. Um, And I think you're right. I like ETFs better than mutual funds in in a brokerage account because of the tax sensitivity of those particular investments. In actively managed mutual fund, they're buying and selling and trading. So even though the fund could lose value, there could be stocks within that mutual fund that the portfolio manager trades at a profit that would give you a tax bill even though you lost money in the overall fund. Uh, So might try... Um, Exchange-traded funds, index funds, things like that that have very little turnover, so you won't experience that tax bill.
3: Yeah, and, and I agree with that. I think the uh, a lot of people don't really understand when you have a mutual fund, ETF, index fund. So there's two kinds of income that comes out of it. There's dividends. Those are the profits of the stocks that you hold. That's going to come to you in, and usually it's quarterly and and there's nothing much you can do about that unless you happen to pick unless you pick uh, you know, maybe a diversified fund that doesn't have high dividend paying stocks. I mean, I suppose you could do that. The other thing that happens as you mentioned is Joe is, is buying uh, the fund manager buying a selling stocks stocks inside that portfolio, that's a capital gain dividend. That often happens once a year towards the end of the year. And you have basically two kinds of funds, one where the manager's trying to buy and stocks, pick them, sell them, buy, sell, buy, sell, and that causes a lot of capital gain dividends. Then there's index funds, and some, a lot, not all, ETFs are, are the same way, to where it, you're just getting a, a basket of funds, of stocks, if you will. So there's not, much, there's not a lot of activity. You'd like to use the word dividend <laughs> even though it might not be a dividend. Dividend? Mhm. I really? Yeah.
1: So if they're buying and selling, that's not necessarily dividend. That's a well,
3: distribution. Sure, but the but the 1099 says capital gain dividend. Oh,
1: seems so technical with the, yeah. the, the, so I'm the get, actual 1099. i getting, getting CPA on <laughs> Got it.
0: <laughs> you know, if you subscribe to our YouTube channel, you can not only listen to this podcast on YouTube, you can also binge watch all five seasons of the Your Money, Your Wealth TV show. Catch the one that Rob mentioned on surviving retirement without a pension, as well as episodes on IRAs, tax reform and your retirement, retiring in a gig economy, charitable giving that gives back in the form of tax benefits, and more. Plus, a whole bunch of video answers to your money questions. You'll find the link to subscribe to our YouTube channel in the show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com.
1: We got Leonardo Frederick um, from Maryland.
0: No, Leonardo from Frederick, Maryland. <laughs>
1: oh, I, I have no idea where Frederick, Maryland is, but Leonardo from Frederick, Maryland. Yes. Is that better? Yeah. That's perfect. Okay. Uh, hello, Mr. Joe. Oh, right right, there. I'll just sit back. It's addressed (laughs) to you. My name is uh, Leonardo. I have a long question. Uh, So, Leonardo, I work for the U.S. Postal Service and I have my TSP Roth. I'm contributing 100% of it. I'm single. I claim my mother as a dependent. I have a house that I pay every month. I change my allocations like this I put 40% in the C fund, 40% in the S fund. 20% on F fund and that's how it'll be distributed every time I get paid. I can always change the percentage of each fund. The horizon that I set up was 20 year terms. I'm planning to retire in 18 to 20 years from now. I changed to Roth to avoid taxes in the future but my employer contributes matching 5%. That contribution goes straight into the traditional account. It is good, smart, best decision on what I'm doing. Please help me and advise me Thank you so much for your wisdom and advice. So, uh, Leonardo, I wish I could help you out a lot more, bud, but I really can't.
3: That's your answer?
1: Yes. <laughs> well, let me let me try that. He's got twenty years, and I <laughs> don't know what how much money he has, what his pension's going to be, how much money that he's spending. Is he married? Well, it looks like? No, he's single. I'm sorry, I, ha- I have that. Right. Um. So. He's asking if his allocation, so he's got 40% in the C fund, 20% in the S fund, and 20% in the F fund.
3: Right, so that's 40% in in C fund. So that's like large company stock, like S&P 500, common stock. And and the S fund is like smaller companies, small and medium-sized common stock. Yeah. And F is uh, like fixed income. Yeah. So, I mean... So that's roughly 80% stocks, 20% bonds. For for a retirement allocation not needing it for 18 to 20 years, that that could be all right. You're right, we need to know a little bit more. But if it were two years out, it'd probably be too aggressive. Yeah. I think there's one thing I might say about this one, and, and it's all domestic stocks. You might want to do some international. That would be the iFund. That'd be the iFund. Maybe yes. take some out of the C Fund, some out of the S Fund, invest in the iFund. Then I think you'd have a, even a little bit more balance. But I but, Based upon what we know, uh, Leonardo, I think you're on the right track. Yeah, you're going to see a lot of volatility
1: in the S-Fund. That's smaller companies. You're going to get a higher expected return over the long term, but just know that there's a lot of volatility there. Um, so yeah, maybe you tone that thing down. Go maybe 30% in the I fund, 30% in, um, you know, or 40% in the, you know, U.S. Right. 30% maybe. international, then the rest you got. Yeah, um, maybe 20-20
3: f- between C and S. Yeah, something, something
1: like that. Like that. Uh, but, yeah, I think he's doing a uh, – he's all right. I like uh, the Roth. Uh, I do, too. I don't, know, I don't know what his tax bracket is, but –
3: Right. Me yeah. neither. Uh, but uh, I think uh, you've done, you're doing a lot of good things.
0: See, you had all kinds of good advice for him. Well, there you go. Well,
1: <laughs> but it's difficult to say here, You know, this know. is what I'm doing. Well, that's the is hard – This is good. Yeah, because we don't know anything, uh, right? Anything. You know, just going blind here. <laughs> Isn't that what we always do? <laughs> Pretty much. All right. This is from Brian. He gives no location given, so let's pretend he's from San Jose, California.
3: Those are notes, Brian from San Jose. For Randy.
1: Welcome, <laughs> welcome to the program. So let's, we're, we're pretending now. Uh, uh, how's that weather in San Jose? <laughs> well, it's it's uh, it's nice right now. Um, hi, Al and Joe. Joe. Okay. All so. right. Enjoy the show. I have listened to all your podcast episodes.
0: I swear I'm not adding that to people's emails. I swear it.
1: (laughs) I will be leaving my employer and would like to know if I can transfer my 401k, approximately $500,000, into my wife's solo 401k. My wife is a realtor and I participate in the business by maintaining the financial records, filing tax returns, etc., but unpaid. This can be changed if needed. I understand if a spouse participates in the business and is paid, they can contribute to the solo 401k. Does this allow? Um, does this allow applying to roll over a 401k? I'm age 56, plan to be in my new job for about five to ten years, and will probably join uh, my wife in the real estate business after my employment. She is 55 years old. Another alternative is to transfer the 401k to my new employee or employer, and if I retire in service before 59 and a half, I can draw early without penalty. Our strategy includes backdoor Roth IRAs and her contributing to the solo Roth IRA. Where are my limits on my wife's contributions, including Roth IRA rollover, solo 401k, and solo Roth IRA? We have sufficient funds to max out the Roth IRA, and we have um, and where we can have her income and in expenses of approximately $60,000. Uh, so b- Brian, to make this real simple. Roll your 401k because he's doing the backdoor Roth. Yes. So I get where he's coming from. Yes, Me you too. can open up a 401k plan if you're a participant within the business, but you need to get paid. You need to get paid, and and so and he mentions that. So
3: that's we we agree with that.
1: But if you already have another employer, just roll it into that plan. That would still qualify for you to do backdoor Roth IRAs. Alan, she makes sixty grand. How much money can she contribute to her uh, solo 401k?
3: Well, assuming she's under fifty, eighteen thousand five hundred plus the profit sharing part's probably—I'm going to say about almost twenty thousand bucks, something like that. Maybe, so, maybe, maybe, probably about thirty-five thousand total. So,
1: Brian, what you'd do is you would have her go to the solo Roth four hundred one k, and then the profit sharing would go pre-tax, so you can get best of both worlds. Correct. think <laughs> hey, that's it for us. Hopefully, you enjoyed the show. Hopefully, all of you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. There's a lot to be thankful for. Uh, We'll see you next week. So it's called Your Money, Your Wealth.
0: Special thanks to today's guest, Jefferson Lilly. Learn more about mobile home park investing at mobilehomeparkinvestors.com. Now, to subscribe to the Your Money, Your Wealth podcast newsletter, to subscribe to the podcast on your desktop computer or your favorite mobile app, or to learn how to subscribe, visit the show notes for this episode at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. You'll find links to everything you need right on that one page. Email your money questions to info at purefinancial.com or call 888-994-6257 or find us on social media. Listen next time for more Your Money, Your Wealth presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free financial assessment, just visit purefinancial.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast. In the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Gobble, gobble.